Today's podcast delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when sending on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast. Now, time for the show. Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan and I'm here as always with David Scott. Great to be here again and hello everyone. Uh, and our guest this week is uh, the Chief Investment Officer and Chief Economist at AMP Capital, Shane Oliver. Thanks, Shane, for coming back on the show. It's great to be back again. Um, okay, so just a quick rundown on what we're going to talk about this week. Uh, we'll talk about the RBA. Um, we'll just do a quick recap on that. Um, we'll talk about what happened with the Australian dollar, um, which uh, ended up higher than, uh, than uh, where it was before the RBA cut. Um, we're going to talk a bit about the banks. Uh, this is becoming, I think, um, pretty um, issue in focus this this week. Uh, it's a, um, becoming a little bit of a problem for the banks in terms of how they respond and explain their decisions not to pass on the full 25 basis points in the um, in the RBA's cut to the cash rate. Um, and um, then we're going to um, look at some of the uh, the big questions for the global economy. We'll try something a little bit different on the show show this week and sort of try and do a bit of a, a big picture view. And this is, um, I suppose, uh, stirred by uh, a, a note uh, by Bill Gross, um, one of the uh, founding uh, fund managers at PIMCO, uh, who's now running his own fund. Um, but he, uh, you know, wants to thinks that the big questions in the market include: when does our credit-based financial system sputter and break down? Can capitalism function eff- efficiently at the zero lower bound? Um, how does the um, the whole central bank quantitative easing program? How does that uh, wind up? Um, can it ever stop? And how might it end? And what should investors do in this uh, in in this scenario? Um, and it will be great to um, put those questions to Shane and get his uh, his take on them as uh, as as one of Australia's most eminent and eloquent economists. So, um, but quickly we'll start um, uh, with uh, with the RBA. So, twenty five basis points uh, on 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 Tuesday. Uh, so, uh, David, do you want to take us through the uh, the reasons for the for the RBA's decision and what happened? Inflation is low. That's the uh, the crux of it. Um, and uh, there's other factors that came into it. Uh, obviously, the Australian dollar is one of those as well. Uh, not so to go and weaken it per se, but to go and just keep a lid on it and stop it from appreciating any further and add into already disinflationary forces we're already seeing in the economy. Uh, but in a nutshell, it's uh, it's, it's the inflationary impact uh, or the disinflationary impact we're seeing at the moment. Uh, all the rest of the areas of the economy, sounds uh, retail sales figures we've just received today weren't uh, weren't spectacular. But by and large, the rest of the economy is going okay. It's from uh, an inflationary perspective is the reason why they cut. Uh, and um, Shane, uh, what's your base case uh, now for what happens um, uh, next? So market's quite uh, divided. I think there's a, a another cut fully priced in um, in futures market, cash futures market for the end of the year. Um, um, but in terms of where it ends up and what the, um, the, the where this might this cutting cycle might finish, um, what do you think? Well, we think they'll probably cut again. As David said, it is all about inflation. Um, the economy itself is sort of okay, um, but I think yeah, one more rate cut and we pencil that in for November. There's a bit of a pattern here. Always, if there's nothing urgent, the Reserve Bank tends to wait till it gets the next inflation forecasts. Uh, they'll come at the end of October. Next inflation outcome, that'll come at the end of October. And, of course, they also do it in the meeting where they review their uh, economic forecast, and that's the mid-month of each quarter, so that November's the next one. Um, so, 
yeah, one more one more cut. Um, it's not in the bag. I think like the one we've just seen, it's going to be a close call. As David said, though, very very uh, much dependent on inflation. If inflation comes in on the low side, which we think it will, that'll trigger a cut. And of course, the uh, the currency is another factor weighing on the Reserve Bank here. Um, they won't be too pleased that the Aussie dollar. Um, only went down momentarily and then has gone up after the last, last cut. And I think in a world of very, very low interest rates, that maintains the pressure on the Reserve Bank to try and match that to some degree, not fully, but at least match that, to stop the upwards pressure on the Aussie dollar that's still flying through. Uh, so, David, um, you know, it looked like there wasn't much of a move in, in the Australian dollar when uh, the decision was announced. Um, and um, I think, I guess, one of the things that happened was it was in the overnight tra- trading session, the U.S. trading session, uh, when the Aussie dollar really started uh, rallying. Now, this was um, uh, related to dollar-yen, right? So do you want to – you've been looking at this for years. Do you want to explain how that dynamic works? Because I think some people will be curious as to why a move in the currency pair between the U.S. dollar and the yen can end up sending the Aussie, um, you know, uh, 100 bips higher. How long is the podcast worth to go for today? I'm not sure uh, how much uh, how much time I've got to explain this, but uh, yeah, look, obviously when the RBA cut, the Aussie fell down to uh, 75 cents, like bang, uh, there was a floor there, then just hovered around there, and uh, that was for about half an hour or so. Then it started to creep high. Uh, dollar yen uh, has been in the news a lot recently with uh, with all the talk about the Bank of Japan monetary policy easing, the potential for helicopter money, um, stimulus packages from the government. Uh, and it just happened to coincide with an announcement that uh, the Japanese government said, here's our $28 trillion stimulus package. Uh, the markets looked at it and it was like, well, this is a wet lettuce leaf. Uh, it's not really going to go and, and give the uh, desired economic results for the Japanese economy. Uh, and the market responded by driving dollar-yen lower. Uh, that weakened the US dollar across the board. Uh, and then the Aussie dollar was, uh, was caught up in that. It uh, rebounded really quickly. Uh, got up to about 76.40 odd, uh, and then uh, then pulled back. That was, in my opinion, the main reason for that short-term move in the Aussie. But a lot of people need to understand too that there was more than one rate cut already priced into the market going into the meeting. It wasn't a matter of if the RBA was going to go and cut again. It was either going to go in August or are they going to go at a later date, maybe November. Uh, so the markets already had that expectations in there. The markets had positioned for that. They were expecting there was going to be a rate cut. Once, uh, once the Aussie got to a certain level and didn't move any lower, people said, well, if it's not going to go any lower, we might as well buy it. And Bob's your uncle. She was in a 2% tire within, uh, within about uh, 12 hours. So, um, you know, one of the, I suppose some people might look at this and, and think, you know, the RBA, in terms of these huge currency markets, um, uh, that um, and they're so liquid um, and the hunt for yield is so aggressive in them, you know, people, you know, so you might describe the RBA as taking a knife to a gunfight um, with, um, with, uh, with, with, you know, a 25 basis point cut um, in, in, in the, um, the official cash rate. Um, but, um, Shane, does it make it harder now for the RBA to have um, a real impact on in, in the inflation picture and the demand outlook um, when the currency remains uh, so strong? It, it does make it a little bit harder. I mean, one of the big surprises, um, David and I would have both agreed on this, that over the la- I hope anyway, um, over the last five years, the Aussie dollar has fallen from 110 US cents to 75 US cents. And where's the impact on inflation? Go back a few years ago, everyone was talking about inflation is going to take off. And uh, traded goods prices, um, price inflation um, in areas you'd expect inflation just isn't showing up. So there's something else going on here. Obviously, global deflationary forces 
lots of competition uh, domestically, the plunge in commodity prices, all of these things are impacting. Um, so there is a question mark as to how successful the Reserve Bank will be, but it has to try. You're not going to get any action out of Canberra on this for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, so what's left? Well, interest rates, that's all they can do. Um, and you could argue, well, they've still got a fair way to go if they, if they need to. Um, so I think you know, they have to try. There's no, there's no reason to give up here. Um, the Reserve Bank would natu- naturally worry that the longer inflation stays below target, the greater the chance that various companies around the place are going to say, well, next year we're not going to budget for 2.5%, 3% wages growth. It's going to be 1.5% or 1% or something like that. And before you know it, um, sub-2% inflation will become the norm. It'll get entrenched in the economy, get it very hard to get it back up again. Next time we have a recession or a slowdown in the economy, um, we'll be looking at deflation. So I think they have to try, and that's what this is all about. Obviously, there's no guarantees of success, though. Yeah, you can you can absolutely imagine that the headline uh, inflation print at one uh, percent um, through the year um, that we got recently um, would be a lot of companies would be looking at that and going, well, you know, we know we're going into looking at our wage budget now for the next twelve months, and headline inflation is only one percent. So guess what, guys? Um, so yeah, not uh, not great. And obviously, you know, those decisions flow through to the spending power of the, all of the people who, who work for them um, and and spend their money across the economy as consumers. So, look, um, uh, what's your projection now for the Australian dollar? Well, for some time, I've been uh, thinking, saying it will get to sixty cents. Um, I was thinking by the end of this year, that's kind of looking a bit hopeless. Um, when I made that forecast, I thought the Fed would be uh, raising rates a lot more than has been the case. Um, I still think we're going to go down into the 60s, um, and that's simply looking at history. Uh, you know, we usually we spend a few years above the the fair value range on price relatively, so that took us up to a dollar ten. Um, historically, when commodities go in a down cycle, you spend some time well below that range. You overshoot on the downside, and I do think somewhere out there we'll get to a point where the Fed uh, will raise rates more. And the interest rate differential will continue to narrow. So that so soft commodity prices continue narrowing in interest differential, and ultimately an overshoot in the currency will get us down towards that sixty cents. But it may take um, several years to get there. David, your take? Oh, I don't. I'm not sure that's going to get the sixty cents. That's just my my personal opinion. Doesn't uh, really matter too much, but. Uh... It really comes down to the Fed more than anything, in my opinion. Commodity prices are obviously a very important part of the, uh, the jigsaw puzzle, but to me, it's when the Fed is uh, is confident enough to raise rates again. Hopefully, when they raise rates again, it's, uh, there's still a lot of question marks in the uh, in the markets about when that's going to occur. Is it going to occur later this year? Is it going to occur next year? Is it going to occur at all? Um, so, a big thing for the Aussie dollar and uh, and currencies in general is generally is what's going to happen with the Fed. Uh, obviously, we have a big uh, payrolls report again uh, coming up uh, tomorrow night and Friday night uh, Australian time, which will hopefully go some way to you know, filling in the blanks to see where we may get a hike this year from the Fed. I still don't think it's going to happen, but you know, the stranger things have happened. Hopefully, there's uh, going to be a really strong number, strong wage growth, and then on you know, September probably won't be back on, but uh, no, probably December. So in the wake of this uh, decision, we've seen a return to a, a good old um, uh, Australian sport. It's a bit like uh, the Olympics comes around every four years, a round of, uh, of bank bashing. Um, so um, the, all of the four banks cut their interest rates uh, on their variable uh, mortgages um, pretty quickly after the decision was announced, but they didn't pass on the full 25 basis points. Okay, Now I saw ANZ... 
uh, uh, CEO uh, Shane Elliott saying yesterday that he admitted that probably the banks uh, need to do a better job job of explaining um, the situation here. Uh, the Prime Minister has been saying they should pass on the 25 basis points. Um, Malcolm Turnbull has suddenly um, discovered a newfound enthusiasm for um, pushing the banks into um, uh, into passing on all of these uh, all of these all of these rate cuts. So. Um, uh, and of course, Labour, which proposed a royal commission into the banks, um, based on which was largely based around the behaviour that we saw around, you know, maybe these um, accusations of um, rigging the bank bill um, market, um, and um, then sort of the behaviour of some of some traders over time, that pushed them towards that royal commission uh, position that they took to the election. Um, but now that um, the banks are not passing on these 25 basis points, this is a, a, a platform on which Labour has been able to reignite this conversation about the, about the contribution that the banks are making to the community and to the economy. Um, so um, just looking at one thing, Macquarie analyst Victor uh, German yesterday, he estimated that, it's, that not passing on these, these rate cuts um, will save the banks in the various ways they've, the banks of the, the big four have sliced and diced it. He reckons it'll um, result in $917 million in savings um, for the banks, which is a lot of money. Um, but really, this is about um, protecting something very important to the fundamentals of banking profitability, which is the net interest margin that they have. Uh, Shane, can you explain um, what that is and why it's so important to um, the bank's business? Well, the net interest margin is basically the difference between what the banks charge their customers and, and their cost of funds. And uh, I mean, in some ways I find this um, debate a bit amusing because it's a bit like a form of uh, arguing for price controls. And if you're going to argue that uh, the banks should be passing every move on, then maybe we should apply the same uh, to worse and everything, everything else in the economy. There's a fall in the price of wheat. Well, how come there hasn't been a, say, 5% fall in the price of wheat? How come there hasn't been a 5% fall in the uh, price of uh, my bread? Well, I mean, it, it could get a bit obsessive and potentially unhealthy. Um, I, I don't want to be in the position of just defending banks. Um, uh, I, I do think uh, in this environment people need to shop around. If you're not happy with your mortgage, uh, if you're looking for a new mortgage, there's plenty of people out there looking for market share, plenty who did cut their rates by the full amount. Um, it's also worth noting that the rate the banks refer to is an academic one. I don't know a lot of people who use that standard variable rate. They're talking about five point something. Who's paying five point something these days? You've got to, you've got to, got to have your head in the sand if you're still paying that. Um, the norms are down in the fours. So... But a whole bunch of issues going on here. But a couple of influences. The cost of funds for the banks is influenced by deposits. So bank deposits, what do the banks pay? 2 3% there. Um, they might get some money from overseas, you know, issuing bonds overseas, paying uh, probably 2 3%, those sorts of numbers. Um, they also got to raise some money from shareholders. That's called equity capital, but it goes into their funding. And that costs them about 6 or 7% because they've got to pay the dividend to the shareholders. So all of these things you add up and you weight them out and that gives you weighted cost of funding. And the thing to, to be clear about is that, that you know, they don't borrow money at the official cash rate. They don't borrow money at the official cash rate. The cash rate affects some of that, um, but not a lot of it. There's no mechanical connection. Um, if you want to get picky about this, you might say, well, um, you know, how come the banks aren't cutting their term deposit rates in line with the cash rate? And you're not going to say that because that's going to hit, uh, hit uh, self-funded retirees. And it is worth noting that prior to the GFC, 
Um, but the whole rate structure of the banks was some was uh, very different. You had term deposit rates running below the official cash rate, and therefore that allowed the mortgage rates to be at a margin above the official cash rate that's a lot lower than it is now. Post the GFC, the banks have been keen partly because of regulatory pressure to get more of their funding from term deposits, so they're offering higher term deposit rates than the official cash rate, which is good for people like my mother, for example, who's got money in bank deposits. Um, but it's also meant, of course, that the official ca- the uh, standard variable mortgage rate is also at a higher level relative to the cash rate than would normally be the case. So their cost of funding arguably has gone up relative to the cash rate. And, of course, the need for more capital has also pushed up that cost of funding, uh, which in turn, of course, is, means the banks are therefore seeking to offset that by charging more to their customers. So it's a lot more complicated, I think, than saying cash rates down 25 basis points, therefore banks should automatically pass that on. Yes, the, uh, the key thing is for me is uh, when you talk about the cash rate, one word that often gets overlooked in that is the word that should come before it, which is the overnight cash rate. So it's what you borrow at overnight. Uh, because the RBA cuts that particular rate doesn't mean that the entire interest rate curve for the banks goes and shifts down 25 basis points across the curve. It doesn't. Um, and another thing that uh, no, there hasn't been so much discussion about, but um, there's concerns about the global banking industry in general, not just in Australia, but in other parts of the world, particularly in Europe. There's been a few, uh, few instances we've been, uh, been tracking here at BI. Uh, but US dollar LIBOR, three-month LIBOR rates have actually been spiking up recently as well. And that's a sign of, you know, there's a little bit of funding stress in the marketplace, hence why we're seeing a lot of the banks going and raising their short-term deposit rates as well. So there's more than one factor. Just because the RBA has cut 25 basis points, it doesn't mean that automatically the cost for the banks to go and uh, fund their mortgage book goes down by 25 basis points as well. It just simply doesn't. Um, and of course, one of the things you touched on, uh, uh, Shane, as well, is there's this regulatory uh, risk too. So there's a requirement to ha- hold more capital. APRA, uh, the domestic regulator, um, putting some, um, uh, you know, has been um, in some what you can imagine would be fairly forthright conversations with the banks over the last uh, few years. Um, but then also there are global capitalization rules um, which are going, which have been rolling out. Uh, and there's another set of them, uh, I think, uh, uh, due to come up over the next year or two. Um, so, so that again will, it will increase the, the, um, uh, their requirements to hold more capital um, against their loan book. That, that's right. Uh, and in fact, we recently saw APRA, the, the bank regulator, come out and say, or give, it, uh, give the, the impression that they thought the banks will ultimately have to hold more capital again. So they raised more capital last year, so they had those equity raisings. Um, might have to do some more of that in the year or so ahead, um, all of which puts upwards pressure on their funding costs. So if you're getting a greater proportion of your money that you lend out to people for more expensive funding sources, such as t- bank term deposits or... Uh, uh, particularly uh, from capital from your shareholders, on which you've got to pay a 6 or 7% dividend yield, um, then your cost is going up. And obviously banks are trying to recoup some of that. So I think that, that the key to all of this is that it's a lot more complicated, as David's pointed out, than just this the cash rate alone. Absolutely. Um, I want to turn uh, quickly to um, to glo- global stocks, and you're listening to the Devils and Details uh, podcast on, um, from Business Insider Australia. Um, so global stocks. Now, Shane, last time you were on the show a couple of months ago, um, you said that you were um, optimistic um, about the outlook for stocks, and we talked about a couple of things that were needed to sort of get through. One was Brexit, um, and the other was the federal election. Um, and um, I suppose the 
best way you can describe both is that we've sort of modelled through. Um, Brexit has not. Now, there were some really interesting uh, PMI gauges out of the UK last night, which showed pretty much all sectors um, of the economy now in contraction. Now, if that persists, then you're potentially looking at something um, you know, an overall contraction in the in the British economy, um, which would not be good. Now, there have been a few other things. British banks um, have been beaten up. Um, uh, well, their 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 share prices have been, um, and um, you know, a lot of that is to do with the the fall in the value of sterling. Um, um, uh, but um, overall, you know, world hasn't ended. Uh, the, the sun's still coming up. There's a question about whether they'll ever leave the the EU in um, in the end, anyway. Um, but um, so we've got through that. European stocks have recovered. The FTSE, um, even with the adjustment in the currency, um, back you know taking that into account, it's uh, it's uh, it's recovered quite well. And, and global stocks um, continuing to hit um, all time highs. And the the ASX has had a a, a big rally. Um, so. Um, you know, we're 6% last month um, on the ASX. So um, where does it go from here, Shane? What's your view for the rest of the year? You're still um, largely optimistic? Yeah, I'm optimistic. Um, I am conscious this is now August. August, September um, historically have been uh, tough months for, for global share markets, particularly in the US share market, and that, that impacts everybody else. Um, we've also had a good run over the last couple of months, which has taken markets into a... a an area you'd say is technically overbought. Um, and I think Brexit sort of, in a way, um, everyone was looking at Brexit, it was sort of seen as a major event. Um, and arguably everyone was looking the wrong way because things weren't really that bad and the flow into Europe hasn't been that bad, at least so far anyway. And as you say, the economic data out of the UK has been terrible, but that's only 2.5% of the world economy. Who cares about them? Well, we do, but they're not as important as everyone seems to make out, given the uh, the BBC feeds into Australian media. Um, but if you look at it in a greater context, Europe, which is far more significant, that's the only reason you ever worry about Brexit. The immediate effect in Spain was to not vote for Podemos, um, the Eurosceptic party, but vote for the, uh, the centrist People's Party. Um, and European PMIs, business indicators, have actually been quite good. So... Overall picture I get on the global economy is it's okay. It's still muddling along, not as good as it could be. Um, you've got it easier for longer, or at least easy for longer monetary policy. And in the US, we had a bit of an earnings recession there. Now there's some signs that maybe US earnings might be looking a little bit healthier um, flowing through the recent profit reporting season. So all of those things suggest to me short term, bit of a risk of consolidation, bit of a correction after the, the gains we've had. But by year end, we should be at a higher level. Not going to be a fantastic year overall, um, but I'm looking for a, an OK year out of shares. And you mentioned uh, technically that the market looking a little bit technically overbought. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, it's just the fact that the market's gone up a long way in a short period of time. You know, 6%, 6.3% gain in our share market in July was the best month since, I think, uh, well, October 2011 or way back in 2011. So after such gains, you often go through a bit of a pullback. People take profits and so on. So on some indicator, one of them, RSI, for example, RSI is a technical indicator indicating whether the market's become overbought or not. It, it's gone to those sorts of levels. Now, you can sort of flip these things around to some degree and say, well, they might have gotten positively overbought, which is a good sign, um, but it still warns the risk of a, a little correction or maybe at least a consolidation in markets.
Yeah, a healthy market should have pullbacks, you know, particularly in a bull market. You know, if you see something just goes breaknet high, anyone know who wants to go and look at a clear example of that, go and check out the other NASDAQ chart from the early 1990s up to, uh, to 2000 to see what an unhealthy market looks like and then what the, the ramifications can be. Same thing with the other uh, Chinese stock market a couple of years back as well. All you saw was this massive uh, rally up, then just uh, capitulation at the top and then you know, back to where it started. So that's, uh, that's my opinion about so. You know, Yes, uh, for, for stocks itself, uh, one thing I noticed just uh, there was uh, there was a report that came out from ANZ that said uh, that the Olympic Games are bullish for global equity markets. Now, I'm not sure if that's because volumes drop off and, and people sort of lose interest in the market, so there's that natural tendency that markets tend to waft higher. Uh, but they did some analysis and they went and looked uh, back, I think, back to uh, Los Angeles 84. Was it 84? Yeah. I, was, uh, I was only a very young tucker then. Um, and, well, I was younger, <laughs> <laughs> and there was, um, and they're and they're showing that uh, by and large, uh, there's been some really big increases the year after an Olympics, and that's for global equity markets. Obviously, 2008 was a different kettle of fish with uh, with the GFC, but also during the Olympic period, you no, know, there's a tendency, particularly in the US, that stocks rise by, you know, one, two, three percent over that period. So maybe there's going to be a a good period ahead for uh, for stock investors. Go for gold. Um, gold, gold, gold for um, for Australia and possibly um, um, for a few uh, equity indices as well. Um, okay, um, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Um, you can find us on iTunes where we'd love it if you could rate us or leave us a review. Um, and you can find us on the web at uh, businessinsider.com.au. Okay, I'm going to quickly dive into something that I said we would uh, try to get to, um, and it's Bill Gross. Um, so who's got a very miserable uh, sort of um, uh, outlook on, on how the state of the global economy. And it's about some of the big issues. So, um, you know, uh, zero or negative interest rates and so on. Now, he's um, issued – he's used to be at PIMCO, um, you know, and uh, he's a star uh, fund manager, particularly in the fixed interest world. Um, and he's got a new – he's in a new outfit, Janus. Uh, and he um, has a note out to investors uh, this week where he's talked about, you know, his um, son sort of happening on a Victoria's Secret catalogue and wondering, you know, his son asked him, Dad, what's Victoria's Secret? And he sort of got, went through in his head, well, is he asking me what's Victoria's Secret or what is Victoria's Secret? And uh, he said, you know, this drew him to uh, thinking about how do I explain the big questions in life to my son and then on to how do I explain the big questions in the world to investors. And he put forward these five questions, um, which I'm going to put to, to Shane and maybe Dave, you can uh, chime in on this. But um, his, big, his big questions were, let's start with this one. So when does our credit-based financial system sputter and break down? So... Um, you know, so much of how we do everything in the world, you're starting up a new business, you borrow money. Um, and uh, we've just been talking about the bank's ability to borrow and, this, you know, finances so much uh, economic activity in, uh, in, in the Australian economy. Um, so what are the risks around, um, around a credit? From, a, from an academic sort of high-level economic pr pr perspective, what are the risks around um, the, the, um, the, the, credit, the credit market? I, I, from a, a sort of a technical point of view, you'd say there's two risks. When does it break down? It breaks down when there's perhaps so much credit out there that people don't want to borrow anymore or banks don't want to lend anymore. Um, 
And alternatively, if you're in an environment where confidence is so low that no one wants to borrow anymore, and again, banks don't want to lend anymore, um, and that the latter one is the liquidity trap, and you could argue we may have been in a bit of that, or some countries may still be in a bit of that. Um, and of course, we also have uh, relatively high debt levels. You know, why are uh, consumers in Australia and parts of Europe and elsewhere a bit reluctant to borrow as much as they used to on low interest rates because their debt levels are all rel- rel- relatively high? So. I, don't, I wouldn't say it's broken down, though. I just think we've moved into a much slower phase. That huge run-up in credit ratios that we saw from the 1980s into the 2000s has now done its dash. We've got to rely on uh, um, much slower credit growth going forward. But I think the flow of credit will still flow around the economy. You've just got to, you've just got to allow that those credit ratios won't keep rocketing higher like they did up until last decade. Um, the other, the next question that he posed, which I think is something that people will be fascinated about, is can capitalism function efficiently at the zero bound? Right. So we're talking about this world that we're in now with um, with zero interest rates. So the, so the Fed in the U.S. for um, for years um, zero or close to zero uh, interest rates, and in Australia we're down to one point five, um, but in Japan zero or negative interest rates um, on certain deposits. So um, what's gross driving out here? Well, it's a, it's a rhetorical question. You've got, to, you've got to bear in mind that Bill Gross is a fixed interest guy. Fixed interest guys are always the ones who cheer when the unemployment rate goes up and the economy plunges into recession. They like bad news. So um, th- their take on things is often gloomy. They seem like a funny bunch to me, But uh, although I've got to look over both sides. But anyway, um, I think what he's getting at is, you know, you normally think of interest rates as being positive and when they're zero or negative, you know, maybe something's wrong. Maybe that means capitalism won't work anymore if you can't charge positive interest rates. Um, I think they've got to be a little bit careful here, and, and I'd separate the US from others. The US, I think, moved very quickly with its problems, got to zero interest rates that seemed to help the economy through that rough patch, and now things are, have improved. Whichever way you cut it, the US economy has improved, and that tells me that capitalism does operate even when you got down to near zero interest rates. Um, I am a little bit concerned about some of the others who've taken interest rates in the negative territory. Of all the things central banks have done, I think that's probably the, the daftest or the silliest. Uh, and I think the Japanese have learnt from that. Um, I, don't, I wouldn't get overly carried away with it, though, because you've got to bear in mind that economics will tell you it's the real rate that counts, and real interest rates are actually a lot negative, more negative in the 1970s than they are now. Um, but as our sound recorders reminded me a little while back, um, behavioural finance will also tell you the nominal rate's incredibly important. When you think you're getting a negative rate, that's not a good thing. So I, I think um, bottom line to me is it can function. The US tells us it can. US seems to be getting better again. Um, but I am a little bit concerned, long like with Bill Gross, that the negative interest rate thing has gone a bit too far. And I'd rather see an input to that sort of uh, concept. Um, David, I might throw this one to you. Um, so there's 180 billion US dollars of monthly quantitative easing by central banks. Um, can this keep going and how might it end? <laughs> can this keep going and how will it end? Well, isn't that the other uh, question? Um, the answer is yes, it can. Like, you know, what's, uh, what's preventing, uh, at the moment, uh, central banks are predominantly buying a lot of government bonds. Uh, we're seeing the European Central Bank has started buying private uh, institution debt. Uh, Japanese even going by ETFs, uh, stock market ETFs. So there's a lot of assets that they continue purchasing. Um, how does it end? Uh, it probably ends when uh, people wonder what the actual value of the asset is, given it's been inflated by all of this asset purchasing that's going on. Um, 
do I want to see that day? Do I know, want to know what it's going to look like? You know, I've seen Terminator 2 and all those kind of movies and stuff like that. So probably something on those lines, but hopefully we never get there. I suppose it did end in America. I mean, we had taper tantrum and then the end of quantitative easing. It's been ended in the US, what, for 18 months now or so? So um, the US economy didn't collapse at the time. No, it hasn't. And uh, look, that's that's one example, and I agree that that has occurred. But uh, I'm just concerned about where how effective monetary policy is in Europe and in Japan in particular at actually being able to go and function and go and drive economic outcomes now. Uh, we're seeing with the Bank of Japan, they've been doing quantitative easing, or sorry, QQE uh, for now, the last uh, three years. Uh, and the economic outcomes have really not been delivered. And that spent an incredible amount of money uh, to go and do so. Um, 80 trillion yen per annum uh, is their uh, the annual purchase rate at the moment and there's speculation they're going to go increase that again particularly after last Friday there was an adverse reaction to the, uh, the disappointment they are only going to buy more ETFs for the stocks um, I still just yeah, where it's going to end you know is Helicopter? Well, that, that's well, that's 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 the uh, that's the the one that everyone's talking about now, and the Japanese government now has the ability to go and change that. Uh, they can go and change the laws to go and allow it to actually be a legal practice. Uh, what that will do to inflation rates is uh, is another question. Um, hopefully, not something that we'll seen in the likes of Zimbabwe or the like. I, I guess the reason you consider it is that one downside with quantitative easing is that puts lots of cash out there, but it's, a lot of it's just gone back and sat on reserve at the Fed or at the ECB. It doesn't get lent out. So if you combine money printing with giving checks in the mail to people, um, they're more likely to go and spend that money because they've actually got the cash that hasn't been lent out. They didn't have to borrow it. Um, they've actually got the cash. Some of that money would get spent. So therefore, you could argue that direct helicopter money would arguably be a more efficient way to pump cash into your economy than this indirect quantitative easing approach. So do you think we might see that? Uh, if things get desperate enough, we will. And a few years ago, I would have been paranoid about a Zimbabwe as well. You know, Don't forget the worry five years ago. Mark Fave was always warning. He was telling us America will be the next Zimbabwe after QE2. Well, we're still waiting. You know, have got 1.6% core inflation over there. Um, uh, but I think if things get desperate enough, yes, they will. The rotors will be going. They won't quite use helicopters because it means the fittest will get the most money. Um, <laughs> so that's a bit unfair. But uh, it could be, you know, just think back to the GFC. Checks in the mail in Australia certainly did the trick. They helped. Yeah. But if you finance that with money printing, that's one way of doing it. Would you do that if inflation is a risk? No, you wouldn't. But if deflation is the risk, then you might consider it. you just got to be quick to get your helicopters back down again as soon as inflation starts appearing. I was going to ask you, Shane, just really quickly, with Japan, I've always looked at Japan as maybe being a, a forebearer for what could potentially occur in the rest of the economy, just with their demographics. They've got a, an, a very aging population now, and then obviously the Bank of Japan is struggling to go and boost economic output and activity with those demographic forces working against them. Do you see that as, as potential like to what we may see in other advanced economies? Uh, obviously, we're uh, no, two decades behind in like the US, Australia, and the like. Is it a potential that... you know? The world could become Japan. It's certainly a risk, and that's it's funny. When we look at whenever you go to Japan, I don't know if you've been there. Like, it always looks okay to me. You know, it's not a country that's been in twenty years of continuous recessions or depressions or whatever you want to call it. And and that's the funny thing when you look at America and the and Japan over the last twenty odd years, they've both had similar rates in per capita terms. Real GDP growth has been about one percent per capita, um, and we forget that their population is falling, their workforce is falling. So that's been a big drag. I think that the 
so, so that could be a bit of a precursor to what's happening going forward. I guess we tend to offset it by immigra- immigration. Um, Japan doesn't do that. Um, and some European countries have done the same thing, you know, all these immigrants coming in. But um, the, the, the thing that hopefully won't be a precursor is their slide into deflation. And there I think it's, uh, it's all down to uh, central banks uh, making sure that doesn't happen. And I think ultimately central banks can control that because I, I think high inf- inflation, high inflation is just as bad as deflation. They, they both will distort economic decisions. So uh, when you've got inflation below target, it's just as important for a central bank to make sure you get it back up as it is to get inflation above target back, back down again. So um, the, the, he Gross also posed this question, which is, you know, we've covered some of this, which is, you know, how, how would you know if, if, if these global monetary policies are succeeding? And I suppose that's really about the inflation picture. But then his last question is, what should an investor do? Well, Bill Gross will say invest in his funds. Well, which is exactly <laughs> what his letter said. <laughs> but, uh, that's why he's written his letter. But um, what should an investor do? Well, it's it's a difficult one. I think, it, firstly, investors, um, assuming, let's say you're, in, say you're in cash, you know, you need to ask yourself what's most important to you. Is it totally, is it preserving the value of your investment or is it getting a decent, sustainable income yield. And I reckon there's a bunch of out investments out there that will give you a decent, sustainable income yield. You know, you can pick stocks. There's, there's, there's ways of picking shares. Um, you don't just blindly go for the high dividend yield because it could be inflated by debt. Um, but you can, you can develop processes which will help you towards companies that pay decent, sustainable dividends over time. Likewise, um, investments in commercial property. I mean, housing has gone crazy in Australia, but commercial property is still yielding 6% plus or so yields. Um, infrastructure investments. So there's, there's avenues out there that investors can, can look to. And likewise, around the world, it's, it's not as easy as uh, buy and hold these days. You know, when you've got a rising tide, all boats go up, but it's a lot messier. Um, you have to be more selective when you, you go invest in share markets around the world. You can make an argument, well, the US share markets had such a huge run, but there's lots of other markets trading on much lower PEs that have been left behind. The emerging world's been left behind over the last few years. Um, those things will turn around and that gives opportunities for investors. Likewise, the Australian share market until this year has underperformed for the last six years. There, there'll be an opportunity there. So I think there's still lots of things investors can do, but I guess you have to be perhaps more active about it than you were, say, 20, 30 years ago when I started my career and buy and hold would, uh, would see you through. What should an investor do? You know, I've seen those doomsday prepper shows on TV and what they get up to, you know, tin food and uh, Smith & Wesson, that's the, uh, the two uh, necessities that you require. Baked beans. Baked beans, yeah, you know, there's plenty of tin food and then go hunker down and then uh, you know, have as uh, much ammunition as you can go and uh, destroy a small country with. It seems to be the, uh, the common threat from the... Uh, from what we'll, the... we'll need that for when Trump takes over. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll, see, we'll see what happens come November. Um, I'll take a slightly different slant, it's, uh, and it may be being perceived to be a little bit bearish, but I think, uh, for me, from a long-term perspective, the world population is continuing to grow. Uh, there's going to be a demand for food, so I look for hard assets, and I look for arable land. I think it's going to be something that's going to be a key asset that people should be looking at, uh, not from a doomsday prepper perspective. You can go and put your, uh, your bunker there, but certainly, uh, no, food is going to be a, a very, very important thing for people moving forward, and that's going to help uh, support prices of those assets, in my opinion. Is there a potential market for tinfoil hats as well? Um, Okay, you've been listening to the Devils and Details uh, podcast from Business Insider Australia. Our guest this week has been Shane Oliver, uh, who's the Chief Economist at AMP Capital. Shane, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been my pleasure. Uh, David, thanks very much for uh, being on the show this week. Lads, great chat, and I hope everyone out there enjoyed the other show.
You can find us on iTunes where you can subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. Uh, you can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. Uh, we're all on Twitter individually, um, and you can find Business Insider on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. This show is produced by Josh Nicholas, and we'll see you next week. This podcast was delivered by Australia Post. If you've ever received a branded package, you'll know it's a small detail that makes a big first impression. Now with Australia Post, you can design your own personalised packaging. For more info, go to auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.